This year we are going through the book of the Bible called the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. Either way, it's Acts. It's a book about action, the activities of the early church. It's not a book about people sitting around and talking and talking and talking and talking without doing. This is an account of the activities of the early church. But it isn't just action for action's sake. It is purposeful, intentional action. The purpose of God overall lived out in and through the activities of his people. We started in Acts chapter 1 with the title and theme, When Good People Happen to Bad Things, a play of words on the popular book that had poor answers, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book was popular, though, because it touched on our experience of bad things that happen to people who are no worse than others. In fact, it often seems it's the people who have the least who are victimized the most. By the way, this is also the popularity of the shack, which offers the same poor worldview as when bad things happen to good people. Both books present a weak God who is not sovereign and who can't do much about bad things and can only be there for you to comfort you. And that's about the best that the false God can do. The idea that the true God is both sovereign and good, and yet suffering still happens, even and especially to the weakest in society, is tough to comprehend. But it is the absolute truth. And for those who come to know this true God revealed in Scripture, it is a far greater comfort than the weak alternatives offered by the world. The book of Acts and chapter 8 in particular, show us God is sovereign and good and active in dealing with bad things. And so the Bible changes the point of view from when bad things happen to good people to the more profound when good people happen to bad things. When the people who have been redeemed by God through Jesus Christ become instruments in the Redeemer's hand, we become God, part of God's redemptive activity redeeming, restoring, and repairing the bad things. Now, the old adage is, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. When bad things happen, look for ways to turn it into something good. That's redemption. That's what the God who is sovereign and good and active does in this world. So that we might see that God and hear his call upon our lives. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. God, overall, we recognize that you are the God of revelation. You have spoken to your people throughout the ages. And what you have spoken was written down and miraculously preserved so that we now have it available to us. We pray that as we open to your word, your spirit would come and bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able, and so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. This morning, as we go through Acts chapter 8, it might be helpful for you to have your Bible open in order to follow along. If you don't have your own personal copy of the Bible with you this morning, you can open one of the blue Bibles in the pews. It's page 776. 
So starting on page 776, you will see that there are four sections in this chapter. And so we're going to go through each of those four sections of chapter 8 of Acts, one section at a time. The first section will tell us about the church persecuted and scattered. The previous chapter, we read about the killing of Stephen by the Sanhedrin. And so it is following that stoning of Stephen that we come to this in chapter 8. Listen to God's word. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Stephen had done nothing wrong. Actually, he was the leader in bringing food to widows, performed miraculous signs and wonders, healing people. He did nothing wrong and, in fact, did all kinds of right things. But the established powers considered him a threat, and Stephen was killed for it. History certainly shows the unjust killing of many good people, and there are still martyrs around the world today, people who are killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ and the good things that they do in the name of Christ. The word martyrs means witness or testimony, and Christian martyrs are those who are killed because of their testimony of Jesus Christ and the good things that they do in the name of Christ. In the previous seven chapters, we've read about persecution, especially of the apostles, the church leaders. And then we read about the martyrdom of Stephen. In verse 2, we read that this persecution is now against the whole church. In fact, notice that they don't go after the apostles, the church leaders, but go against the most fragile. Verse 2, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The persecution is described in verse 3. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now that Saul will incredibly be converted. We're going to read about that conversion next week. He becomes known as Paul. So as not to confuse him with King Saul in the Old Testament, the kids here at Westminster know him as, this one as Saul Paul. Before he is converted, however, Saul Paul goes around and wrongfully imprisons men and women who have done nothing wrong. And Saul Paul really doesn't have the authority to do this except the authority that comes with power trips and what becomes accepted in society. And doesn't that sound familiar? Again, history and even contemporary culture shows that there are some powerful people who do things that are actually illegal beating people, destroying property, threats, and intimidation. And they get away with it because they can. Now yet, this is certainly not true of all people in positions of power. Remember, our prelude was written by a lawyer and a politician, right? We pray for people who are in positions of power and authority and glad for the many who do what is right. In this case, Saul, Paul, and the Sanhedrin have seen that they cannot stop the apostles, so they go after the weakest. 
But now notice what God does in this, because God is sovereign and good and active. The church gets scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What was it Jesus told the disciples to do at the start? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Saul, Paul, and the Sanhedrin just served the church a bunch of lemons. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. God is sovereign over all of life. And so this scattering by God's sovereign act of goodness is going to make a whole lot of lemonade. Have you ever noticed that God needs to push us in order to make us grow? He pushes us out of our comfort zone. Things that we never thought we would do, we end up doing because God has pushed us out of a comfort zone. In fact, I was talking to my daughter just the other day about how there are very few people that I still talk to uh, from my childhood. I now live 300 miles from where I grew up, and I've traveled a lot further than that spiritually, and I'm still traveling. I mean, how else does a kid who used to get kicked out of Sunday school become your pastor? The Lord pushed me out of my comfort zone, and he's still pushing. The Lord pushed Moses and Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land. The Lord pushed the church out of Jerusalem in order to make a whole lot of lemonade. And so Luke's account now follows Philip, another one of the deacons along with Stephen. We pick up with this account beginning at verse 4. Listen again to God's word. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Having been pushed out of Jerusalem, verse 4 tells us, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And we follow Philip, who ministered the gospel in Samaria, which is an area of Israel north of Jerusalem. By God's sovereign goodness, Philip performs miraculous signs, driving out evil spirits, healing paralytics and cripples. And the result in verse 8, so there was great joy in the city. In Jerusalem, there's mourning among those who bury Stephen and who watch their loved ones get dragged off to prison. But in Samaria, there is great joy as a result. The sovereign God is good and active, spreading joy, even while there are others who are mourning and suffering. And I don't know about you, but I can get my narrow blinders on and only see my suffering, unaware of what God is doing to increase joy in other places. We see it a bit more when we even look at the church in the U.S. We see how our numbers have declined, especially in a culture with less Christians than in generations past, and certainly a culture that doesn't prioritize church participation, and we mourn the declining numbers in churches here. But we continually hear reports from our missionaries about the things that God is doing around the world. We have missionaries in several places who tell us that they are experiencing a moving of God's Spirit unlike anything they have ever seen. In Honduras, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and South America. We got a group going next week. In India, China, Japan, Taiwan, the Far East. In Bulgaria, Turkey, and the Middle East. God is taking lemons here and making a whole lot of lemonade 
spreading joy all over the world. So is God sovereign, good, and active? Well, sometimes in my life it doesn't feel like it, but I cannot deny the biblical truth, and especially when I see what God is doing outside of my little life. Doesn't mean that God doesn't care about me, quite the opposite. God cares about me so much that he keeps reminding me it isn't about me. And so while godly men sorrow for Stephen in Jerusalem, God has filled spreading joy throughout Samaria. And the more Saul Paul persecutes the church, the more lemonade God makes with the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places. And that brings us to the strange case of Simon the sorcerer, beginning at verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them and they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Well, he's sometimes called Simon the sorcerer. Verse 10 says that he was known locally as the great power. But the Greek word for great is magus, and so he is often referred to as Simon magus, like saying Simon the magnificent. He had amazed people with his magic. Magic is also another Greek word. It gets translated magic or magic arts or sorceries. But magic is really about illusion. It's the appearance of having powers, but they're actually tricks. Think David Blaine, right? That guy's freaky amazing, isn't he? Does crazy awesome tricks that make you think he has got to have some sort of mystical, spiritual, otherworldly power of some kind. But they really are just illusions and tricks. And for the first time in his life, Simon the sorcerer saw a power that was the real deal. He had been doing tricks, but this was something else. Philip wasn't trying to draw attention to himself, but kept pointing to Jesus Christ because it was through Jesus that he was able to do these miracles. 
Now, maybe from a professional point of view, Simon's thinking to himself that he's going to have to pick up on this. If he's going to continue in his profession, he better get some of the power that this Christian had. And picture David Blaine realizing that his next feat needs to feature some of the power that Philip displayed. So with this, one of the questions that's asked about Simon Magus is whether or not he was actually regenerated, born again, and saved. Verse 13 says that Simon himself believed and was baptized. But later, we read that when the apostle Peter came, he says to Simon in verse 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. And that's an interesting phrase from Peter because when Peter refused to have his feet washed by Jesus, Jesus had responded by saying, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Same phrase. Peter was not an unbeliever at that time. He was simply not obeying God's will in that moment. And Jesus called Peter to repentance. And Peter repented, replying, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Peter, who was previously known as Simon, perhaps resonated with his namesake here. In verse 22, Peter calls Simon to repent. And in verse 24, we see Simon asking Peter to pray for him. Now, maybe this was him asking for prayer in addition to his own, or maybe it was that kind of cop-out. Well, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to repent. But could you pray for me since you seem to have some extra connection to God? Whether or not Simon was actually saved, we can apply this account either way. If Simon was saved, then we are warned against what has actually come to be known as Simony, named after him. Simony is the buying or selling of ecclesiastical privileges, offices, or benefits. Simony throughout the church in the Middle Ages was the purchasing of an ordination to an office or buying salvation called indulgences. And they had that sordid past, but there's also a sordid present. The notion that if you give enough money to a church, you'll be blessed or get extra say in the church is connected to this sin. The idea that raising enough money for some initiative means getting the blessing of God is a modern form of simony. You cannot buy off God. You cannot buy off God. When God really blesses, he does it in unexpected ways and it's never linked to money. You cannot buy off God. As we read in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God does what he chooses to do. His spirit moves, and people are changed, often in very unexpected ways. Now, if Simon was not saved, then this account serves as a warning not to assume that someone is a believer just because they have said some of the right things and taken certain steps expected of a Christian. The modern church had a period of time when a large percentage of the population were church members. And churches hardly ever removed members from the roles, regardless of inactivity or hypocrisy. More recently, churches have stopped even emphasizing membership and create ways to attract attendance so that they can claim to be growing and see lots of converts. Around 70% of Americans consider themselves Christians and only 40% of Americans attend worship regularly. 
It has been noted that during the time of the Puritans, only about 7% of the population were church members. And yet those churches were incredibly effective in their gospel ministry. Lately, if a church claimed 500 members, it probably had less than 200 in worship. But in the generation of the Puritans, if they claimed 500 members, they probably had 1,000 in worship and were impacting the lives of 2,000 people. So did Simon have a credible profession of faith? Yes. And that is all that we as humans can determine at the outset and thus receive people as members. But was Simon's profession lasting and truly from the Lord? It's not clear from the accounts, and different commentators take different points of view and make good cases for both. But all that takes us to the interesting account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, starting at verse 26. Listen again to God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, two comments at the outset in order to orient us as we approach this account of the Ethiopian eunuch. First, he's from Ethiopia. We talked about this last week, but it's good to remember again, God is not an American. Ethiopia is not in Butler. It's not in Pennsylvania, it's not in the United States or Europe. Ethiopia is in Africa. And during this time period, it included much of the area that we know as the northeast portion of Africa. And so when you picture the accounts of Acts chapter 8, and most of the Bible for that matter, picture people from the Middle East and North Africa. Jesus called his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Open Google Maps sometime and expand it all the way out and put Jerusalem right in the middle of your screen. You know what the ends of the earth are? To the east, it's Japan. To the west, it's the United States. 
We are the ends of the earth. He's from Ethiopia and he's a eunuch, one who has been castrated, kind of like a male cat being neutered so that he could serve a queen, princess, or other women in the royal court, and there's no concern of sexual impropriety. Some eunuchs were not castrated, but were voluntary eunuchs committed to celibacy. But in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch here, according to verse 27, this is the important part. He was an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. In charge of the treasury, the money, the gold of the queen of Ethiopia. Yeah, this guy has some weight, some pull, right? This account highlights that God is sovereign and good and active. A eunuch from Ethiopia just happened to be on a certain road south of Judah, and that same road that the Lord told Philip to go to. And verse 27 tells us, so he started out, and on his way he met the Ethiopian eunuch. Now keep in mind that Philip has a flourishing ministry going on up north in the Samaritan villages. And the Lord says, go south to this desert road. Remember what we saw earlier, how God pushes us out of our comfort zone into difficult places? Can you imagine for Philip, I got a bang up ministry going on here. Why would you send me down to the desert in south of Judah? We like familiar. We don't like change. We like comfort. We like known, not unknown. We want it to be like it was before, but God keeps us moving. Notice also that Philip was just starting out on his way to wherever he was going when this meeting set up by the sovereign God happens. Have you ever tried to leave the house and you get interrupted like 10 times before you can even make it out the door, right? Every interruption is annoying, right? Because you're just trying to get going, but consider that every interruption is ordained by the sovereign God. The interruptions feel like lemons, but the sovereign God is making a whole lot of lemonade. Days when you want to just put your kids to bed and relax, and they start asking a million questions. Consider that those million questions might just be the Holy Spirit working on your child at that moment. On the way to the doctor or sitting in the waiting room, and there's a reason it's called the waiting room, (laughs) because that's where you do a whole lot of waiting, right? It may be that that waiting room is a place that God is making a whole lot of lemonade. This account highlights that God is sovereign and good and active all the time. Philip, a Greek-speaking deacon who had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution, and an Ethiopian eunuch in charge of the queen's money just happened to meet on the same road while they're both on their way to different places, and Philip walks up to the chariot the exact moment when the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. Philip simply asks, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch invites Philip up to explain it to him. Have you ever found that something that you were reading is the very question that's asked the next day? That in your personal devotions, whatever it is that you're studying, that comes up in conversation shortly thereafter? Have you ever found that the sermon on Sunday applies to exactly the thing that you're facing or something that you end up facing the very next week? We sometimes fear doing evangelism because we don't think we know enough, but the sovereign God prepares us for what we need to know when we need to know it. Certainly as we grow, and what we know, we grow in the number of things we can speak to, but evangelism is simply sharing the good news. And the very thing you have just learned 
may be the very thing that that person sitting right over there, that interruption is what they are wondering about. And then you can discover the next answer together. In this case, he is reading about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And we read that passage in its larger context earlier in the service. The account of the suffering servant that clearly points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so verse 35 says the most remarkable thing. Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. That's what we're called to do, to start with any passage of scripture and immediately take it to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it's all about Jesus. Every passage is rightly interpreted and applied when it goes through Jesus. Jesus is God and was active in creation. It is through him that the God of creation is rightly made known to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It is to him that the ceremonial laws point and through him that they are fulfilled and it is in him that we are able to obey the moral law. The kings point to Jesus as the king of kings who reigns over all. The priests point to Jesus as the great high priest who was sacrificed for us and continually intercedes for us. The prophets point to Jesus as the fully human, fully divine son of God who makes God's word known to us and God's will revealed for our lives. Jesus is the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took all the lemons, the sourness of sin, and has made a whole lot of lemonade. Is there any question why the eunuch is filled with such joy? Lots of people ask about the abrupt ending and the snatching away of Philip from verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. It's simply that just as the spirit had told Philip to go to this road, as he was just starting out, so the spirit now has him continue on his way. The eunuch doesn't see him again because the eunuch isn't focusing and rejoicing because of what Philip has done for him. He's rejoicing because of what Jesus has done for him. He's been given a whole new life with Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, surrendering to the God who is sovereign and good and active. We are naturally narrow-focused and engage in self-centered pity. Only through Christ do we see the larger transforming work that the Lord is doing and participate in redemptive activities wherever God makes places us making lemonade. Drink in God's redeeming work accomplished for you. Drink in his sovereignty. Drink in his goodness. Drink in his active pursuit of you. And may the truth set you free. Amen.